A few months ago, we found ourselves somewhere in Alapura, driving along the banks of the Pampa River, and we stopped at a bridge. The bridge itself was small and weathered. Far under it, the Pampa undulated, making its way from the hills to the sea. And hidden on a gently sloping bank was parked a Kerala snake boat, its black wood gleaming in the sunlight. We had stopped at the bridge to talk to some local folks, residents of the nearby village, about the floods and how they were doing. We met a few of their Gram Panchayat representatives. We stood in the baking hot sun and they showed us how high the waters from the Pampa rose to when the dams were opened. Halfway through our conversation, an elderly gentleman walked up to us. Thomas was a local resident who moved back to Kerala around five years ago after spending decades in the Gulf. He had migrated out in the 70s and returned back to retire in his hometown in 2015. He senses a palpable difference in the way things were and how they are now, from services to the state of the environment and the quality of life. See, I was um, uh, away from 40 years from here. In 1971, I went to Dubai and I came back in 19, 2015. So much, I enjoyed Kerala. We had the good salary and we came here. We have a uh, homely uh, atmosphere here. Now it is dangerous and very, uh, we are afraid to live here. Because the situation is ha- has completely changed. Like so many people, Thomas left the state to work but sent money home. It's the remittances of millions of people like him that have operated as an invisible force supporting Kerala's families. But they have also been linked with the huge demand for construction, which has had detrimental effects on the environment. We stood on the bridge talking about the past and all of the things that seem to have broken down, according to him. And then he pointed us to his house down the street that he built where he found snakes floating about that night when the floods came. And we spoke about his post-retirement work and how he is active in his community today. When we met Thomas, it was late January, days before the first COVID-19 patient was confirmed in Kerala. And since then, the state has been an exemplar for the world in the way that it has handled this crisis, once again proving that its priorities are rock solid. But the very real, harsh economic consequences of COVID-19 are what its resilience will be tested against. And complicating matters is the fact that Kerala's economic profile has evolved in the past decade. The contribution of remittances and agriculture have gone down, as services and industries have grown. And each new disaster has weighed heavily on the state's resources. And if disasters recur every year, as they seem to be doing, two years of floods and now COVID-19, the state isn't going to have much left to use as a buffer. But compared to the rest of the country, everybody says Kerala is great. Kerala was great. Is? No. Was. (laughs) In Kerala, resilience has been a part of the conversation for quite a while before it became the word we all seem to be talking about. So, given its head start, what is Kerala doing to keep the well from going dry? Welcome to Kalavasta, a six-part series on Kerala. This is episode 3. In this episode, we explore how new efforts to build Kerala's resilience are focusing on its two most important resources, rivers and remittances. 
All through the series so far, we have tried to understand whether environmental consciousness needs to be more widespread in Kerala. Is this what needs to permeate across the state so bigger changes are addressed? Some leaders, like V.D. Satishan, have always worried about the environment. He's a member of the Kerala Legislative Assembly from a constituency called Paravur. First positive thing is that 10 years back, only among the, only some of the environmentalists were talking about all these things. There was a group of MLS, green MLS, in the Legislative Assembly of Kerala. Actually, I was leading that group, uh, five, six MLS. We have been warning about the ecological devastations and the uh, climate change uh, for the last five to ten years. But I never thought that it will come soon. Who was thinking about these issues ten years ago? Was anyone even listening? They were giving warnings to us. Nobody will care. They are um, uh, conducting meetings and awareness programs. When we started as the mainstream uh, political leaders or the, uh, those who are the members of the mainstream political parties started to discuss this thing. He remembered a number of instances from those early days of fighting for environmental issues. Then we started the green movement with that intervention in the Niliambadi forest area. This was a dispute about landholders who had broken the terms of their leases, illegally occupying land in the Neliampathi forest in Palakkad district. It's a region which is known as the Gateway of the Ghats because of a low mountain pass that is an important route between Kerala and its neighbouring state of Tamil Nadu. And there were a number of projects initiated in many sectors, from building assembly units for car parts to refineries. They were concerned that projects would operate at the cost of Kerala's natural resources. Our point was that, our focus was that, the local river, who is the owner of the local river? We said, it is the local people. Local people are the owners of the river. They are privileged, they are entitled to get water from there. They are all owners of the uh, water. So we have done many things. And it uh, started, uh, some of the political parties uh, started to uh, think about the green movement, and ecological conservation. As you can tell, the rivers are what Satishan is most worried about. Remember, his constituency is Paravur, which is low-lying and very flood-prone. In 2018, it was one of the worst impacted. And for a time, Paravur was turned into an island. My constituency, around 300,000 population, uh, that is the most affected area in the 2018 flood. Uh, it is full of water bodies in my constituencies. And the Periyar, the major river in Kerala, is the two branches of Periyar is sandwiched our constituency. The two sides is covered with the river. So many places look like Paravur, little islands sandwiched between waterways. 
but the reality is a little more complex. Kerala has what many states don't have, which is water. But managing these water resources is a challenge because it has a very difficult topography where you have springs in the forest that express water. And then thanks to the steep gradation, much of the water just runs down and joins the sea. This means that capturing and storing water is a pretty important job. And Kerala has been doing just that for decades. Bear with us while we go into the weeds of this a bit and get a bit technical. Anil Das is a development specialist with the World Bank. And in Kerala, he's been working with the government on building resilience into Kerala's water resource management. He spoke to us and told us a bit about how Kerala's management has evolved over the years. Anil tells us that Kerala's dam management, at the core of the state's water resource management, has been like many equatorial states, designed to store water. So most of the dams across the world, especially likely the water pasture region. In many countries in Europe, or Scandinavia even, where rivers are fed from glaciers, there are huge inflows of water, and water from dams are released regularly and steadily. Whereas as you come down into the tropical countries and then into the equatorial region. In hotter countries, dams tend to be used to store water. They store the water for the off-season agriculture purposes and for drinking water. Kerala has over 70 dams, hydro-powered, for storage, for irrigation, small and big. And the best known are the Periyar and the Iruki dams. But over time, dam management has stagnated, leaving one strong dams weaker and poorly maintained. Anil tells us that in places, critical portions of some irrigation dams, like the crevasse, where the water falls directly once the gates are opened, have been weakened over time. That is supposed to be the strongest part of the dam, because that's where the entire force of the water hits it. There are a couple of places where the entire guiding wall on either side of the dam was broken and water was seeping through the ground because the crevasse got cracked. Even the gates, some of the gates were jammed because they have not been maintained. But all those things, I mean, the maintenance has been poor, I must admit that. Because adequate funds have not been allocated. At the same time, Kerala's rapidly urbanizing population put a lot of stress on the state's water resource management. And water consumption shot up. But unfortunately, what has happened is that over a period of time, the storage, though it was built to store and the water capacity which was required for the population, 30 years ago, I would say, it, it has not been able to cater that that's beyond because the water consumption has gone up substantially. And here is Anil referring to the aggressive urbanization that has been largely unplanned. And urbanization is in a straight line. If you draw in from uh, northern Kerala, from Kasargod, right down to Trivandrum, Kinyakumari, it is a straight line. Every, all the development is on the coast. Kerala is often described as one unending town, but there are regions that are highly densely populated, like the urban agglomerations around Ernakulam and Trishur. And as so many people told us, like Professor Chattopadhyay, whom we spoke to in episode two, this rampant urbanization puts pressure on not just the land, but also the water. Traditionally, Kerala has wells, right? Every house has a well, and which used to be the main source of water. But what had happened with the development is people sunk bore wells wells, which sucked up water at much higher rate. But here we have this sudden spurt of vertical growth. So in an area where there used to normally be two houses, you had, a, you, had to, you had close to 50 houses. In many of these pockets, when state water utilities could not keep up with the demands placed by rapid urbanization, people turned to the ground. 
and much like all over India, Kerala too witnessed excessive groundwater extraction. On the surface, you would not associate water scarcity with a state like Kerala. But even there, demand was so high that bore wells became commonplace. And the demand for water outstripped the supply even in agriculture. That even for paddy farming, which used to take the natural water from the irrigation, the irrigation canal started drying up because the water, groundwater recharge was not happening. So the water, water was coming down the river. A lot of it was to get going to the ground, but then very soon it is to get sucked up. A third culprit was the construction boom. Along with the cutting of the hills and deforestation comes sand mining. Sand is an essential input for construction. And there is a false belief that removing sand from a waterbed will increase the river's storage capacity. But in fact, the sand acts as a cushion for absorbing water and helps manage the flow regime of the river. If you take the sand out, rivers break up and change course. Imagine a river like the Bharatapura, or the Nila as it is sometimes called, a river that holds an almost Ganges-like influence over the culture and arts in Kerala, especially in the Malabar region. Countless artists and writers who have lived along it have been inspired by it. Legends say that a body cremated on the banks of the Nila achieves salvation. Bharatapura is a classic example where the river, if you really look at the, the course of the river from the older maps, you will see that the river has been moving. It has been braiding, and Bharatapura is not a braided river. It's enough to say that decades of unscientific planning have destroyed the state's natural topography. The Pampa is a good example of this. Another holy river, medicinal plants grow along its banks. Long snake boats chase each other on it, and sins are absolved by just bathing in its water. We saw it as we drove along the river, and we heard it from so many people. When rivers flow, the waters that flow down pick up the topsoil or silt with it. And when obstructions are built on mighty rivers... And what happened was it changed its course. When it changed its course, then because there were a lot of buildings, so more obstruction, it increased the porosity and the silt deposition was much higher. It is only where the buildings were coming. Because if you see in the Pamba River, as it takes a right turn after that, which goes into the deep into the forest. From that point onward, the flow is neat. There is going to be no siltation, nothing. What happens then is that the river breaks its banks and changes course, as the Pampa did in 2018. River basins have not been the primary units of water resource management, except in a few cases like the Periyar and a few other rivers. One of the things that Satishan is worried about in his constituency is the lack of data on dam protocols, on the warning systems to people downstream. One of the biggest challenges in 2018 was precisely this. In Paravur in 2019, Satishan approached a scientist who was informally modelling river flows and making flood maps and requested some information, this time before the floods. Uh, first, I entrusted a group uh, from the Mumbai IIT and I interested him for a study, for a flood mapping, the rough flood mapping, not in a uh, complete way, in a rough flood mapping. When the 2019 flood was there, he informed me that uh, there was a dam in Tunakadavu near Adirapalli. And he, at the morning 2.30 a.m., he informed that at 3.30 a.m., the dam will open. The scientist kept track of the rising water levels and kept informing Satishan in real time. 
At 4 a.m., the water will be so high. And then it will reach this place before flowing to some other place. At 7 o'clock, the water will reach in the valley of Chalakudi River. Then it will reach your place within one hour, that is 8 o'clock. And Satishan used this information to set up his own rudimentary warning system. I went to my constituency 4.30 in the morning. I have informed all the people's local body representatives and all the volunteers, uh, all the other organizations. And we evacuated all the people within two hours. Because within two hours. So they saved their materials uh, some places and there were no casualties in 2019. There was a rough idea, rough idea, rough uh, preparation only, uh, not in a professional way, uh, not in a technical way. As Satishan says, with that little information, he was able to avoid a big disaster. There is a broad consensus now that the state needs to put in place better data-driven systems for water management, weather and climate maps, flood modelling, SCADA systems to monitor dams. First, we have to realise, I think climate change is here above us, it is there. First, we have to identify that. Second, we have to uh, study the things with the help of the modern uh, mechanisms, just like rain gauging stations, some river management systems, dam management systems. Then, uh, risk mitigation project should be there. If we are, uh, some human interventions can prevent some type of casualties or uh, vulnerable situations. In river management also, we can do a lot of things. We can mitigate the impact. Definitely we can mitigate the impact. Anil tells us that this time around, the government is bringing in a comprehensive plan for water resource management. Bureaucrats are sitting with technical experts like Anil to plan out a new water regime, to think about how water should be regulated and managed and to put together a holistic plan that goes beyond dam management. A water resources management framework that is based on river basins and one that brings in local bodies in the planning process. The restructuring of the Water Resources Department will build in further coordination between the many agencies in Kerala that deal with the state's water resources, from the Kerala State Electricity Board, the KSEB, to the Kerala State Disaster Management Authority, the KSDMA, to the Agriculture, Fisheries and Irrigation Departments. Central to all their work will be the creation of a River Basin Management Authority. So that's where we are coming to the River Basin Conservation and Management Authority. This was one of the recommendations from the World Bank. Who will have the powers of allocating water and having basin management committees at the, at the ground level so that the local bodies are also engaged in the planning process so this will be the part of the activities and a knowledge centre to also do research. To better manage allocations, the principles around water allocation, and these include questions of pricing and dealing with conflicts so that there is equitable sharing of water between users, will also be reformed. The idea is to collect data, monitor precipitation, water flows and water quality, capture real-time dam inflows, and use all this information to simulate integrated models. The government is very keen that we have that established as early as possible, at least for the based on the data which is they are now collecting and the planning uh, which they are doing. They should at least be able to give a forecast from uh, 
made for at least any one basin and we are targeting is Pamba Basin. Scientific modeling and science-based planning have been embedded into the state's plan for rebuilding Kerala and one of the first basins that will be modeled and that will have regular 14-day forecasts will be the Pampa Basin. Kerala has a very active and powerful local government and the idea is to bring in the lowest levels of government into the decision-making process as well. Getting the local governments to follow the hydrology of the river based on the, the plan which we come up with, that is going to be a challenge because there is a lot of pulls and pressures which happen with them. So that is where we also given a layer for the, at that level with the basin management committees where the represented elected representatives and the local body representatives have to come together to sign off on the master plan for each uh, basin, at least in their jurisdiction. If this works, it would be a big shift from the usual way of working. The Rebuild Kerala initiative was set up by the government of Kerala soon after 2018 to chart a new resilient development roadmap for a green and sustainable new Kerala. The RKI is the apex government body that led the development and is now leading the implementation of this roadmap, the Rebuild Kerala Development Programme, or RKDP. It's about rebuilding back better, improving regulatory and institutional actions, overhauling old systems and introducing ecological and technical safeguards that protect the state. The World Bank partnered with the state to support them through a first-of-its-kind state partnership. For Kerala, it's not just about injecting funds, but about everyone rolling up their sleeves, planning for the long haul, and seeing how they can truly integrate resilience and sustainability into the state's future. Here's Dr. V. Venu, who was the first CEO of the Rebuild Kerala Initiative from 2018 to 2020. See, see rebuilding Kerala is not only about the climate, we, we are getting an opportunity to do things differently, right? And you mentioned river basin. So the water resources reform agenda is all about reorienting and restructuring the department on the basis of river basins. So, uh, but then climate becomes this, this huge presence in every aspect of, of what we do. But the, the underlying principle there, you know, the other one that will, 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 will strongly influence all such uh, work is the reason, uh, is the resilience that has to be built into governmental systems also. The old joke goes that if you go to the moon, you'll find a Malayali migrant there running a business. For decades, Malayalis have emigrated to America, to Europe, and in large numbers to the Middle East. There was a time, until very recently, when nearly every family had someone in the Gulf. The contribution of the Malayali diaspora to the Gulf cannot be understated. And as a consequence, the migrant Malayali's financial contribution back home is very significant as well. That is the backbone of our economy. If you ask, there's an agriculture, agrarian state? No. It's an industrial state? No. Then what is your base, economic base? That's the backbone. That's the flow of the remittance. The small southern state accounts for nearly 20% of the inward remittances into the entire country and within the state itself, remittances account for nearly a third of Kerala's net state domestic product. But what exactly are these remittances? Dilip Ratha is an international expert and perhaps the leading voice on migration and remittances at the World Bank. We spoke to him for over an hour, during which time he patiently explained to us the details of development financing. We begin with a basic fact. Malayalis are some of the most connected diaspora in the world. 
we also know that most of these uh, workers have no pathway to res permanent residence in uh, the Gulf countries. So when their work contracts are over, many of them have to come back home. That means that um, non-resident Keralaites, they stay connected with, with Kerala. This is true for even those Malayalis who settle elsewhere. But let's stick with the Gulf migrant example. So if uh, remittances are sent by, let's say, a driver who is driving uh, a limousine in, uh, in Dubai. How would this driver save the money he earns? He would typically send most of it back home. Most of these remittances are private remittances sent to families. That money uh, goes to the family of the driver and the family then uses it for whatever purposes. Most of the money would be used for consumption. We all do this with the money we earn. Some of it would also be used for sending children to school, housing for everyone, healthcare. But some of the money can also be used for uh, business uh, investments. So much of the remittances that have been sent back have been used to build houses. The construction boom has largely been fueled by this influx of money. Individually, it is one of the first things migrants do to improve the quality of their family's life back home. We see the full extent of this in Kerala. Concrete palatial houses have replaced the vernacular architecture, construction that has directly affected the hillsides and the river. So it's not about building roads or providing electricity to the community. It is about just doing things for one's own household. So the big question is, how can we leverage on these migrants' resources for development purposes? How can the government uh, do that? In the past, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, many governments in different parts of the world recognized the importance of remittances for their countries and used them for public purposes by decree, like in Turkey or Mexico. But those kind of by-decree schemes did not work. A significant part of the LIP's life's work has been in showing the world that globally remittances are not inconsequential flows and that if people are given incentives, they will contribute significantly to their home countries. There are multiple ways to do this, from bank deposits for non-residents or fixed deposits. The thing about non-resident deposits is a bank deposit. It can be withdrawn anytime. And uh, if, you, if you have a fixed deposit, you have to break it. And that involves penalty. This is where the bond market comes in. Bonds encourage longer-term investments in the state, allowing for development project financing. Development finance experts like longer-term bond financing. You know, if you issue a bond, let's say the duration is five years, then the bond is going to mature in five years' time, and until that time, the money is yours to invest. So there is predictability. And because it's a bond, you can list it on the stock market or the stock exchange. Then people can buy and sell these things. So there is also the ability to use one's money if there is a need to get out of the bond and convert it into cash, let's say before the maturity of the bond. A diaspora bond is an instrument that governments use to raise funds from their diaspora communities. You attach the bond to a project that is dear to the diaspora. And riding on their strong connections back home, these bonds tend to be good ways to channel critical resources sent home especially spurts of remittances after natural calamities, like the floods in 2018 and 19. This patriotic discount, as Dilip calls it, has been used by other countries like Israel, 
which raised over $25 billion. And Nigeria. Nigeria's diaspora bond raised a whopping $300 million US dollars when it was launched. It's like uh, when you ask people, what kind of a financing instrument would you recommend for a poor country? And uh, the first thing people would say is that be careful, taking on debt is like uh, playing with fire. So fire can do wonderful things if you control it properly. The same way, debt can do wonderful things if you use it properly. And one implication of that is that if you are borrowing in dollar terms and then your revenue is in local currency terms, you might have problems of paying back in the future. Luckily, in the case of Kerala, a lot of people would be interested in investing in the bond in local currency terms. The fact that the bond owns and is repaid in local currency is important because investors from the diaspora are more willing to receive payments in their home or local currency, and they are less concerned by currency devaluations. The diaspora tend to understand what's going on back home and are not averse to keeping their assets there instead of only building them where they currently live. Basically, they still care and want to be a part of the development of their home country. India has used this instrument three times since 1991, and Kerala's government is hoping to use it to raise critical financing. And um, uh, if Kerala were to do a diaspora bond, it would actually uh, make history because uh, it would be probably the first, not probably, it would be the first uh, bond in local currency terms. So that would be a really new thing. It's one of those desirable things that development finance people want, uh, and we would have that in Kerala. And for Kerala, a significant problem will be the decline in the earning capacity of migrant workers. We are still in the early days, but rough estimates are that remittances in South Asia will decline by 22%. Hundreds of thousands of migrant workers who have found themselves without work or money have already registered to return home to Kerala. This also means that Kerala will see an influx of skilled workers coming back home and looking for work. Until now, Kerala has depended on mechanisms like budgetary reallocations to finance post-disaster recovery, or from money received from the centre or elsewhere. On the one hand, if Kerala is to become resilient, it needs to find ways to finance disaster risk management before the disasters occur, and create mechanisms that are more sustainable. The diaspora bond is one such example. We asked Dilip how the diaspora reacts to ideas such as these. So when I met the local Kerala Sabha, that's the diaspora organization in Abu Dhabi, I was quite struck by the unanimity of support and patriotism towards Kerala. That was a little bit of a surprise in a, in a very emotional way. People do get very emotional when they get together and start thinking about their home back and the community back home and uh, supporting them somehow and feeling that, you know, the, the, the help that they can offer actually matters. So this is a great uh, way of building a bridge to the diaspora. The first bridge is, um, uh, is, is uh, founded on a diaspora bond. That bridge would last for a long time in providing a tangible channel of engagement for the diaspora in their communities back home. In our next episode, 
How do you restructure one of your oldest government departments so that it works better for the environment? Thanks to Anil Das, Dilip Ratha, Thomas Matthew, VD Satishan and Dr. V. Venu. I'm Radhika Vishwanathan. Kala Vasta is brought to you by the World Bank. For more information, please visit worldbank.org forward slash Kerala podcast.